0: My name is Bruce O'Neill. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm in uh, uh, two Renew groups that you just saw, uh, some of the people that are in some of the groups that I that I have with uh, Jeff and Nancy uh, Holting, and then my wife Kathy and I lead one group on Friday nights, and then Larry Clawson and I lead one on uh, Wednesday morning, and all of us would agree that the leaders... I get so much from not just the material, but seeing how the material impacts the people in our study and therefore it ends up impacting us. So, um, that's just a sampling of the number of people in Renew. If you haven't figured out, you're in the, uh, new to our church. We're in the midst of asking the Lord to renew us and we're using these particular small groups in which we have. Uh, most of our church adults and and youth in and so we're asking that this material through the work of the Holy Spirit renew us so that uh, we might also see that and seek the renewal of our city. And so if you want more information about that, please uh, contact the church office or one of the officers in the church or any of the staff in the church. And we would love to tell you a more about it. I'm going to read from the middle, actually towards the end of Romans 7. Uh, so I'm, I'm in the middle of a conversation that Paul is making. Uh, Paul is talking about his own struggle uh, with sin. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. And so if you would like to follow along, you can do it on one of your uh, digital devices or on the screen or And the Bible that you brought. And so, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Last week, uh, we asked, or I asked, this question that we studied. And that was, how do Christians grow? How do people who tr- are trying to follow Jesus grow? And our answer from the scripture was simply this. We grow by the very same grace, the very same faith that saved us, now grows us. It's not like God has two sets of curriculum. Christianity 101, what Jesus did on our behalf, and if you believe that by grace, you're saved. But then there's Christianity 201 for people who are serious about their faith, and there they can grow by a different set of rules, different sets of methodology, different set of ideas. There's only one gospel that if we believe it, we grow further in and further up to use C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia idea into grace by faith. So much so that Paul will write at the very beginning of this letter that for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to whomever believes to Jews and to Gentiles. And so the righteous live by faith, from first to last. That is, it is of faith. Okay, this week, I just want to begin to describe what that looks like. And so the question that we're answering today is, what does it look like to be growing? We know you grow into grace by faith, but what causes that growth? What would you say a mature follower of Jesus looks like? And immediately, somebody comes to your mind. Even if it's just you that comes to your mind, something, someone comes to your mind. And often, uh, people will say, okay, people who are really, really moral, people who are ethically uh, pristine, a purity about them, that's maturity. I think I argued successfully, now that might be that I've just fooled myself, that you can be a moral person. In fact, you can be more moral than those of us who follow Jesus, even if you did not know Jesus. That is, it does not take Jesus to be a moral, ethical person. In fact, most of us in this room, if we had the time, could talk about someone who did not know Jesus, who doesn't follow God who is an incredibly moral person, and often more moral than us. Others will say that growth looks like a someone who has tremendous knowledge of the Scriptures, and knowledge of the Bible. Here's the problem with that. The Bible teaches that the devil knows the Bible. In fact... He knows it often better than we do. You want a perfect example of that? Go to Genesis chapter three, where it describes the fall. It is Satan who quotes God correctly, but Eve who misquotes God. And that's done in the New Testament when when Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness and begins, don't doesn't God want? And he begins to quote, and and I'm just trying to say, you don't need God to become a master of the knowledge of the scriptures. In fact, many of us who took religion in college in, in, in and non-religious schools, that is, public institutions, many of the people who taught us religion weren't believers themselves. And they knew tons about the Bible. So if it's not moral perfection, or or it's not necessarily Bible knowledge, although you have to know the Bible uh, to grow, well, what what is it? Well, Well, maybe it's service. People who really serve in the church or in the community, those are the real mature people. Well, here's a problem. There are a lot of atheists who are great servants of a community. And so it can't be just simply looking around the room and looking who's the best servant in the church, and that must be the most mature. And it might be true, but that's certainly not true for everyone. Well, then what is it? Let me use a Richard Lovelace developed what is often called the cross chart that has been around in our church for a while. It is a, uh, an illustration of how people, what it looks like for someone to grow. And it goes like this. When you did not know Jesus, when you were someone who did not have a relationship with God, the holiness of God, who God is, was very minimal, if at all. And more and more people in our Culture know less and less about who God is. And before we were followers of Jesus, we didn't know much about what Jesus, who he is, and what he had done. And we know very little about our sin. It's when the Lord, through the work of the Holy Spirit, reveals to us the character of God and the corruption of our hearts... That we begin to see that God's standard for us and the sin of our hearts, there's a gap. And then the gospel begins to bridge that gap for us. And we call that by faith. We receive that truth by faith. And we grow. Obviously, not as much as we will later in life. But initially, that's how much we know. Because he... He begins to show us a little bit about the character of God. That's what that word holy means. Obviously it means moral perfection, but it means so much more than moral perfection. It literally means other, that it, that God is in many, many ways different than us. And even in the ways he's like us, he's infinitely more pure in and greater in. That is, you, you and I can have great minds, 160, 170 on the IQ uh, test. But God's uh, can't be measured. He has infinite knowledge. See what I'm saying? When you're in the presence of God, even what greatness you have seems puny. So it's not just that he's different. He's significantly different in the things that we are like him. And God begins to reveal that to us by grace. And that begins to make us feel Unacceptable. Another way he shows that to us is slowly, by degree, showing us our sin. And that gap gets bigger and bigger. So that when we remember what Christ has done for us, it grows deeper and our appreciation for that grows greater to understand that we've been utterly loved and forgiven and accepted and adopted into the family those great truths and blessings of the gospel get more important to us, and so the cross grows. But there are two ways to truncate our growth. One way to truncate that growth is to lower the standard. That is, the cross shrinks when we begin to look at the Bible and say, yeah, I understand all that stuff that God commands, but really what he he demands of us is to do our best and God will do the rest. That is, I'll do my best efforts, but in the end, God knows I'm not perfect, so he will just overlook my imperfection. The problem with that is that we tend to think of God like our parents, or maybe the way we parent. That is, the kid comes home from shop class. I know they don't have shop class anymore, but they come home and maybe from Sunday school where where we've given them some art project to do. And they're going to do it for mom and dad because they want to show how much they love mom and dad. But they come home and they've colored outside the lines. They've Maybe it's it's something made out of clay and it doesn't resemble a bowl. But that's what it's supposed to be. And we say, man, that's great. I'll eat cereal out of it tomorrow. But it doesn't hold the milk. That's the way we tend to see God. As someone who says, do the best you can and I'm just going to accept it like it is. But God is perfect. And that truncates, that diminishes our need for Jesus. The other way we can do it is we fudge our record. That is, we we look at everybody else and we say, Well, I'm better than they are. I, I might be a gossip. And, but I don't do what they do. I only talk about what they do to everybody. You know... I know what they're doing. I, I couch it in a prayer request, so I make it sanctified. And nobody, everybody knows gossip's not as bad as. That's what we tend to do. And what that does is it also truncates our need for Jesus from the other direction. So we're always either performing or pretending. And in the end, we stop believing Paul's going to illustrate that for us. And we are going to look at really these two ideas. Who we are and who Jesus is. Or at least what Jesus has done for us. From this text. In the middle of writing one of the richest theological documents in human history. Right there in verse 24. Paul stops and says, Wretched man that I am. And so many Bible scholars have gotten to this point in Paul's writing and think, well, Paul is remembering before he became a Christian at the very beginning of that cross chart. Paul's not at the beginning. He's talking about his present. He's saying, I am a wretched man. We are corrupt to the core because he's talking about his heart the context of verse 24 is he's dealing with the fact that he knows now that he has a covetous heart he has a heart that wants what is not his what others have and he said before I knew the scriptures I didn't even know I had a covetous heart but now that I know the Bible I'm condemned all the more I feel horrible because this is going on in my heart a battle to want What I'm not supposed to have. And I know it's wrong. He might be thinking back to his rabbinical teaching. If you know Paul, Paul was taught as a teenager in rabbinical teaching. And they would have studied Genesis 6 verse 5. Where the Lord saw how great man's sin had become on the earth. And that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Wow. Wow. Too many adjectives. Because Paul wrote write in Romans 3, there is no one who seeks God. Not even one. There is no one who is good. No, not one. And you might be thinking in your mind, Bruce, this sounds a little depressing. I agree with you. If this is all Paul is doing is revealing the corruptness of our heart, then you're right. It's depressing. And we'd be better going off into nature or taking a trip to the Grand Canyon together. If Paul wasn't setting up a rescue, then yes, to focus upon our failure would not be good news, which is where we get the word gospel from. Paul is simply explaining the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of our hearts. That's in all of us. Look at verse 18. I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Is that that not what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is all about? Paul is describing the constant war within each of our hearts. Even if the most virtuous person in this room, and immediately somebody came to your mind, and maybe it was you. Even the most virtuous person in this room Is capable of the most horrific things under the right circumstances. If you, if I can't admit that about myself, I am already toast. I am already the lion's meat. It is like I have thrown myself onto the fire to be cooked. Let me give you an example: King David. This is what God said. This isn't what I say or someone else said about it. This is not what David said about himself. This is what God said about David. He is a man after God's own heart. Literally, half of the Psalms are written by David. Tremendous guy. God makes him king after Saul. Everybody looks to him. But there was a season where David and his mighty men were to go into battle. In fact, the scriptures in uh, 2 Samuel 11 says that this is a time where kings went to war. And then the next scene is David has sent all of his mighty men, all of the men of the city to war. And he stays behind. Which is a problem enough. But one afternoon, David goes up onto the top of his palace, and there he sees on another rooftop, because imagine his rooftop is bigger, he's the king, and he sees on another rooftop the wife of his best friend taking a bath. And a lot of people have made much of Bathsheba, somehow she entices him by taking a bath. In our current environment, if that's your view, you're in trouble, Please understand that Bathsheba would be the first person who said, Me too, too. Because he's got all the power. He's the king. He's the one who shouldn't have been there. Not Bathsheba. It is David who sends for Bathsheba. Bathsheba comes. He's the one who puts upon her himself. Knowing that she is the wife of his best friend. She becomes pregnant. And in order to hide that horrible sin, he has his best friend killed. Please understand, there's not a degree of separation between David and Harvey Weinstein. There's not a degree of separation between David and Kevin Spacey. And therefore, there's not a degree between us and David. Paul says in another one of his letters, I am the chiefest of sinners. If Paul had said that at the very beginning of his cross chart, we would have said, yeah, that's that's the way it works. You You see how gross your sin is, and then you get better and better. Now, the truth is, you don't, become more sinful, you just see it more clearly and therefore you see more of it. That phrase, I'm the chiefest of sinners, is at the end of Paul's life. Reflecting on his his own legacy. I am the person who knows my sin besides the Lord best. And therefore I see myself as the chiefest of sinners. It's the equivalent to Isaiah 6 that we will look at in a few weeks where Isaiah sees the Lord and says, I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah is one of the most treasured prophets from the Old Testament. How do we know that? He's most quoted in the New Testament of any prophet of the Old Testament. He is one of the longest books of the Old Testament. But when he encounters the holiness of God... He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why his lips? We'll look at that a little bit clearer, but let me just give you the cliff notes of why he talks about his lips and not his hands or his feet or his stomach or his brain. Why his lips? Because a prophet, where he gets his validation, where his strength lies, is in his mouth. Because the way in which he speaks for the Lord is through his lips. And here is Isaiah saying, My greatest strength, not my weaknesses, but my greatest strength is dirty, is unclean. I think that's important for us. It's kind of like my best acts are what ACDC once said. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Or as Paul claims, they are just filthy rags. Nietzsche called them self-centered altruism. They are the things done with mixed motives. Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, wrote this in that great work. He said, "Heaven have mercy on us all. Presbyterians, he's a Presbyterian so he can say this. Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Or Lady Macbeth in Act of 5, Scene 1. She's struggling with guilt and shame. And she sees on her hands, even though she has washed them, that the blood stains from the murder that she participated in. She wants the stains off her hands and so she cries out, Outspot! Is there anything that can get the stains off my hands? And what she is saying, what Shakespeare is saying, what Paul is saying, what Isaiah is saying, what Herman Melville is saying, even what Nietzsche is saying, is what Bob Dylan said. Everybody's broken. We all miss the mark. Johnny Cash said it well. You have it all. I have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. And I will make you hurt. Let me give you a little more modern. Wolfion Stevens in his Illinois album about John Wayne Gacy. If you don't know who he was, he was a serial killer, the clown killer in Chicago. He's writing about the darkness of the human condition. And the last line of his song is, In my best behavior, I am just really like him. Talking about John Wayne Gacy. Look beneath the floorboards to the secrets I have hid. Tim Keller, in his admission about his preaching, he says, The Christian understanding of sin is different than most other people think. I cannot preach a message or say a prayer without sinning. The prince of preachers of the 20 and 21st century says that I cannot preach without sinning. When you look at my own preaching, I can't remember a time where I have not tried to give you a hundred percent. I do it for two reasons. One is simply because I want to honor God and I want to do right by you. But I have this other motivation. At the very same time, I want God and I want you to think well of me. Here's the problem. If you find any truth in what I say, if you find anything good or beautiful, that is to the glory of God because it was Him and not me. And when I want one ounce of that glory, when I want one little bit of that praise, I am a thief. And that's a heart thing, not a behavior. You might think this is morose. And you might want to be defensive at this moment because I'm implying you're like me. Do you really think? Do I really think I'm better than Paul? Or David? Or Isaiah? This is the only way you and I can be rescued. The only thing that I have to offer God for my salvation is my need for it. That's what the hymn writer meant by nothing in my hands I bring, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I f- to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. Paul put it this way, who will verse 24, who will rescue me from this body of death? Isaiah will say, I am ruined. David will say in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, old God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sins. Who am I apart from Christ? I am corrupt to the core. Do I really believe that? Do we really believe that? I love the people of the Bible. But probably not for the reason you think. I don't look at the characters of the Bible and say, Man, I want to have the heart of David so that the Lord can say, a man after my own heart. I don't look at I don't look at Moses and and see a friend of God. I don't I don't look at Abraham and see the father of faith. I look at all of those great characters and I say, if the Lord can give grace and love and forgiveness to them than I have a little bit of chance to get the same. I don't see them as examples, at least not like others see them as character sketches. I see them just like me. And therefore, whenever I see disgrace in the Scriptures, I see it as an opportunity for Grace. And that means in my own life, when I see disgrace, I see an opportunity for grace. Because that's God's redemptive story. If that's not your story, it's only simply because you haven't grown enough into maturity. Because everyone in this room who has tasted grace, it is because we saw our disgrace Leonard Cohen, who has poetry, said this Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. Here's the best line. And that is how the light gets in. You and I, we we want to so much cover our cracks. We want to get them mended. We want to get them hidden. We want to get them filled. But that is the way in which we see the light. Well, then what's the light? Here it is. Here's the best part of the whole message. We can go. You are more loved than you ever dreamt because you are loved to the uttermost. That's what Paul is saying in our text. This is what he's doing. He's setting us up for this grand rescue. So seeing our malady is necessary to be rescued. That's what Cole is getting at. I gave you a little quote of this. Let me give you the longer quote. He says, I call for a revival of a consciousness of sin and guilt. In short, a revival of sin. And what should be the good of that? Why not a no-fault theology where no one is to blame? The assumption that there is sin implies that there's a possibility for and an obligation to an intervention. In sin is the only hopeful view. This is a non-Christian writing this, by the way. Hence, sin is the only hopeful view. There is evil around us. But if no one is responsible, then no one is guilty. And no moral questions will ever be asked. And then there is nothing that can be done. So we sink into despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the, conscious, the consequences of my proposal would not be more depression, but less. Where there is sin, there is also the availability of forgiveness and redemption and rescue. Where's the rescue? Verse 25. Paul just asked, who will rescue me? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only when my sin becomes this bad to me can grace become this good to me? Only when I see that I am corrupt to the core can I also see that I am loved to the uttermost. Is that hard for you to hear about your pastor? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. The answer to Romans 7 is Romans 8. Just the Beginning in the end of Romans 8. Right after this great struggle within Paul's heart. Who will rescue me? Obviously, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. How so? Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the end of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor anything else, just in case you think of anything else, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? The answer to our struggle is no condemnation and no separation. Now, do you believe that? The difference between Peter and Judas is not in their sin. In fact, many argue that Peter's sin was worse than Judas's because he did it three times. One believes there's no hope for what he had done. And so he commits suicide. The other looks at the cross as the way in which he is forgiven because he is loved to the uttermost. So he repents. This is what Peter says. Where else am I to go? Only you, Jesus, have the words of life. In order to get my stain out, to get your stain out, Jesus had to be stained with my sin. In order to be loved to the uttermost, Jesus had to be punished to the uttermost. The cross becomes beautiful and glorious when we begin to see what He has done in light of our sin. And that's how that cross grows in our lives. You and I, I believe, are at the greatest cultural moment in American history. And you might think, I'm being hyperbolic. I'm just exaggerating. No, we've gotten to the point in our culture where shame and guilt and fear not only are what we are talking about, but it is what everyone feels. And just at this moment, we have the message that the world is looking for. There is therefore now no condemnation and nothing... Can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what people who feel shame and guilt and fear need to hear. So I continue. Just quickly, let me give you a warning and then an encouragement. Here's the warning it's a trick that the devil plays on us who believe after hearing and believing this gospel, he continues to try to convince us that we are still condemned and separated. And when we think we are condemned, when we struggle, are we separating ourselves from the Lord, then we will live as though we are separated and condemned. And we will think God has still got us in the dock on trial. But the truth is, the trial is over. Jesus went on trial for us. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to death. And we were set free. Though your sins were like scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. God will not treat us as our sins deserve because he has already treated Jesus as our sins deserve. Therefore, friends, we are free. It is for freedom that we have been set free. In the ragamuffin gospel, and I'll be done, here's your encouragement. He writes this. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and that I have nothing to earn it or deserve it. Define yourself radically as one who is beloved by God. This is the true self in Christ. Every other identity is an illusion. Today, you get to take your costume off. And you don't have to keep pretending anymore. Today, you get to stop the performing because pretending and performing reduces your need for grace. And that's the very thing you and I need for life. Believe the gospel. Believe what Jesus has done for us. There's no one who has words of life but Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. As we come into your presence, you shower us in grace. For some of us, it feels like a fire hydrant. We've been knocked down and get back up and get knocked down by the grace that is coming out of that hydrant. At such a speed. And need time to process those thoughts. And so I pray that they, that if that's true of anybody in this room, they keep coming back. And keep processing. Keep asking. Keep questioning these truths. Others... For them, their experiences that the, the, the water is just dripping. Because either we can't see, it's, it's being clogged by the fact that we can't see that we are corrupt to the core and in need of a rescue. Or it's, it's clogged up because we don't know we're loved to the uttermost. And so I pray that the draino of your gospel can be poured in. And the clog can be opened up. And for the very first time, we are washed clean. I pray that for everyone in this room that we walk out of here as we are. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I'm going to fly to the fountain. I need the dress that you provide. So that I might know that I am clean. In Jesus' name. Amen.